0: Welcome to Jade Explains Death, a place where the more morbid the curiosity, the better, we'll be confronting the one thing humans fear most, death. Each episode will be dedicated to a manner of death and I will paint a vivid picture of how each would feel as well as share some of the darkest yet most interesting real life stories. Get ready because we're about to embark on an adventure now hello loves welcome back to another death exploration this episode is all about the missing malaysia flight 370 if you're afraid of flying this might not be the episode for you always remember that traveling by plane is statistically very safe deadly crashes are 1 in 11 million i personally feel safer on a commercial plane than i do in a car and this is true even now after covering dozens of violent crashes My content may be upsetting to some and for a mature audience, listener discretion advised. On March 8th, 2014, something happened that gripped the entire world. Many of us have asked ourselves, how in the hell can a big commercial airplane simply vanish into thin air? Of course, the Malaysian government didn't help our fascination much when they were very tight-lipped about the entire ordeal in the weeks to follow. If you haven't crawled yourself right down into this rabbit hole yet, you're about to, This is just a mystery that's impossible to set aside. It's so consuming and unlike anything we've ever seen or experienced before. This is up there on my list of mysteries that I just need the answer to before I die. I know I'm not alone. I'm talking about the super strange disappearance of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. The final report issued on this incident kind of has a ton of holes in it and appears to simply scapegoat one single person. This report rendered information that had to be 100% based off of circumstantial evidence and conjecture. This is because the plane, along with the black box that records data, has never been found. In the super early morning hours of March 8th, Flight 370 departed from Kuala Lumpur International Airport in Malaysia, heading to Beijing, China. The weather was clear and ideal for flying, and there were no technical problems reported. It was just a normal morning flight. The man flying this plane was named Zahari Ahmad Shah. The 53-year-old father of three also had a co-pilot, but Shaw was a senior pilot on board. He had a blemish-free flying record and had been employed through the airline for 33 years. He had a total of 18,423 flight hours logged, which is substantial. He was pretty highly regarded within the airline. Because of his seniority and experience, he doubled as a type rating instructor. This not only increased his annual salary, but also meant that he was trusted to instruct other pilots that worked within the airline. Prior to his flight on March 8th, it seems that people in the airline couldn't speak highly enough about Sahari. Of course, that drastically changed after the flight vanishing. Flight 370 took off at 1241 AM local time, reaching its cruising altitude of 35,000 feet or 10,700 meters at 101 AM. 18 minutes later, at 119, the pilot made its last voice contact with air traffic control. He said, Good night, Malaysia. Flight 370 vanished from air traffic control's radar at 1.22 AM. Luckily, it was still able to be tracked on military radar, which is able to pick up planes flying at lower altitudes. Of course, this sparked a lot of debate over why the plane began a descent. The military radar detected Flight 370 rising to an altitude of 45,000 feet or 13,716 meters, and then rapidly descending to 23,000 feet, 7,010 meters. It also detected an abrupt turn off course shortly after vanishing from civilian radar. Then at 2.22 am, the plane vanished altogether. It's really hard to say exactly how low the plane would have had to go in order to avoid detection because there were other ways that the pilot could have flown under the radar. There are certain maneuvers that can make detection difficult also, the plane could have flown in between two zones to avoid staying on a specific radar for too long. When the plane was last detected, it was over the Andaman Sea, which is about 230 miles or 370 kilometers northwest of Penang Island in Malaysia. Flight 370 would have still had plenty of fuel on board to make it to the island, which has an airport. It's reasonable to assume that if the pilot was experiencing issues with the plane, he'd head towards the nearest airport for an emergency landing. But it gets more baffling analysis of communications between aircraft satellite and Inmersat satellite communication network shows that the plane still continued on flying until at least 8 19 a.m that means that it didn't crash and burn for at least another six hours or so after disappearing from radar sadly no exact location could be determined but at that point it was definitely far from any possible landing sites So it appears that the plane flew away from areas where landing was within arm's reach, only to end up in a place where it simply wasn't. Additionally, the plane was then heading in a completely opposite direction of where it was supposed to be going. So the entire situation's incredibly screwy. Even though the exact location could not be determined, it is allegedly known that the plane went down somewhere in the southern Indian Ocean. There have been several pieces of debris discovered off the coast of Africa and the Indian Ocean Islands that confirms this. Many of these pieces have actually been confirmed to belong to Missing Flight 370. All of this flipping weirdness prompted me to ask myself, okay, is there any potential malfunction of a plane that could cause a pilot to avoid landing? Is there some unforeseen circumstance that could make landing impossible? What I found certainly didn't help this mystery. Sure, things can go wrong making landing incredibly difficult, but pilots are trained to deal with this. Yes, it can be dangerous, but... Flying senselessly in the air knowing you're going to run out of fuel carries a lower chance of survival. Sometimes landing gear can malfunction and fail altogether, but pilots understand that when this happens, they must perform a belly landing. That's exactly how it sounds. The plane lands using its underside as the primary landing device. It wouldn't be reasonable for a skilled pilot to choose to do a belly landing over water when they had other options. Landing in general is safer on land. People have a statistically higher shot at surviving. This is due to the fact that planes will sink, and sometimes very rapidly. Also, if you're stranded in the middle of the ocean, there are plenty of deaths just lurking around you, even if you do manage to get off the plane with your life vest on. Plus, not to mention the fact that the plane appears to have purposefully been flown to an area that would have made it unlikely to be found within any amount of time to survive. Indian Ocean is vast and has some pretty impossible depths. I have to say, I've been silently rooting for the pilot, just for the sake of his family. I keep hoping that the plane will be found along with a black box and that it will point to a freak accident, but I'm losing hope of that. Can you imagine losing your dad, but also having the weight of several nations believing that he's committed mass murder and suicide? Ugh, oh, how's a child supposed to rationalize through something like that? I also know that we have been here before with other historical mysteries. We're fed a hypothesis, dressed up as a fact. We're given all the reasons why something is and none of the reasons that counter it. So I always keep that in mind when it comes to things like this. We've been fed a narrative. We don't know what has been concealed from the public. If a government or corporation wants us to believe something, they're fucking skilled at painting that picture for us, even when it's wrong. I don't think they go so far as to fabricate evidence, But they definitely know exactly what to release and what not to. It's honestly a big old game of PR. There are many people employed who are frighteningly good at this sort of thing. But that being said, it appears that the Malaysian government and airline actually didn't want us to know that the pilot was a prime suspect initially. Their hand was kind of forced by members of the Australian government and the FBI. Both of those entities felt that the evidence was compelling against Zahari. Even one of the pilot's dearest lifelong friends came forward to give an interview that, though reluctant to believe it, he thinks that his friend purposely vanished the plane. He claimed that Zahari was very lonely and listless in the months leading up to the disappearance. He had endured a lot of marital woes and was trying to fill that giant hole by flirting with young, beautiful women, women who mostly ignored and blocked him on social media. About two years after this mystery began, the public finally learned of some data recovered from Zahari's home computer. This man was not just a skilled pilot but passionate and very intelligent. He loved flying so much that he hand-built a flight simulator in his home and it was extensive. Some data recovered from the hard drives showed that there were deleted flights taken on the simulator and they're pretty damning. There are slight deviations from the actual flight course that is now widely believed to have been taken by Flight 370. The destination was the Indian Ocean. It appears that he was practicing disappearing his plane. At least, that's the assumption. There's always a chance that this is a coincidence. Maybe he simply wanted to fly someplace completely exotic. But it's strange. There's a firm rule when people are studying to become pilots. They are never allowed to purposely crash a plane on a simulation pilots don't need to know this information. They're strictly taught all of the different ways to save a plane in dire circumstances. So it does feel off to me that he embarked on several simulations that ended with him crashing the plane in the ocean. Many people argue that these simulations are inconclusive, and they totally are. Without that black box, we're spitballing here. Since the governments and the airline company are all just spitballing, I think it's only fair that I'm able to do the same. What if? Only what if Sahari was so intelligent that he purposely flew slightly different simulations because he understood that this data may be found after he disappeared the plane. If he flew the exact route, well, that would forfeit too much information and really give us a leg up on finding the remains of the plane. Had he truly done this, truly murdered every person on board, simply because he was lonely. He may have wanted to keep this concealed forever, if possible. If we can't ever find the damn thing, there'd always be some doubt of what truly transpired. It may have been a feeble attempt to shield his children and wife from embarrassment. So this could be why he abruptly turned the plane off course and flew under the radar. Could be why he flew right past areas that had airports nearby. Could be why the plane was detected in flight six hours after vanishing from sight. He may have known exactly where he was going to a place where the ocean's so choppy and so deep that it would be a damn near impossible task to find the plane a place where he could ditch his secrets in the ocean along with the vessel himself and the 238 other innocent people on board speaking of the passengers what exactly happened to them i mean we can deduce that they're sadly in a watery grave but there's a theory as to how they met their end and it may not have been on impact. Many experts, including pilots, believe that Sahari likely depressurized the cabin inside of the plane. You might wonder why. Why would he choose to do something like this? Well, for one, after the plane did an abrupt turnaround, many people on board may have been wise to the fact that something was terribly wrong. Also. The co-pilot was likely locked out of the cockpit because there's no way he would just sit idly by as Zahari flew to his destination to crash the plane. He may have ordered the co-pilot to go perform a check or simply had to use the restroom. It would have been at that point that the cockpit would have been locked, keeping him out for the rest of the flight. This would have obviously alerted him to the fact that Zahari was plotting something that was not honorable. He could have spoken to the flight attendants or other passengers, which would have further inflamed their anxieties. This could have sparked a revolt against the pilot. Depressurizing the cabin would have nipped that right in the bud. This would result in the passengers sitting limp and lifeless in their seats, some with oxygen masks secured to their face, oxygen masks that would have only offered 14 minutes tops of juice. This could have been done fairly early on, possibly right after making the turn. That means the 238 bodies littered all around the interior of the plane would have been cold to the touch by the time the plane sunk into the ocean. What exactly happens when a cabin's depressurized? It depends on if it happens slowly or swiftly. My guess is if he did depressurize the cabin, he did it slowly. This would prevent most passengers from ever even realizing what's taking place. That spells less panic and chaos and it would make the ordeal slightly less unpleasant for the victim. The amount of oxygen in the air doesn't actually change, but the particles grow farther and farther apart. That makes it impossible to suck in enough of those particles to service your entire body. Our entire systems thrive off of oxygen. Our blood carries it throughout to our organs, including the brain. Once you lose the ability to take in enough, your organs slowly starve of it. This makes everything go a little cattywampus at first, but will escalate to full-blown sirens blaring system failure. When the pressure is lost slowly, your body takes a lot longer to sound these alarms. Let's be real, our ears often pop and things get a little weird when we're high in the air anyways. Sometimes we even feel a little fuzzy. People with unknown inner ear issues are more prone to this, so it likely wouldn't be recognized as a problem until it was too late. When pressure is lost abruptly, it's a tad more obvious. It can wreak havoc on your eardrums and sometimes will even rupture them, which hurts like a son of a bitch capillaries or blood vessels near your surface will begin to rupture even vessels in your eyes will pop sometimes it can feel like strep throat like the worst sore throat of your life and it's usually coming from your ear but people mistake it your eustachian tube is basically going mad this is the tiny passageway that connects your throat to your middle ear but it also rebalances pressure between the outside atmosphere and the inside when pressure drops super fast It can create almost like a vacuum in that area. It is small, but damn, it's mighty. It creates a lot of singing pressure, and your ear will likely eventually begin to bleed. We experience a small version of this on takeoff and landing. Sometimes people chew gum to alleviate the annoyance. But when a cabin depressurizes, this multiplies immensely. Also, you might feel like your eyes are bulging out of their sockets. They really aren't, but it still feels disgusting you'll also likely experience a nosebleed when the vessels inside of your nostrils also pop. So obviously there are a lot of unfortunate circumstances going on, but also bleeding from your orifices is certainly not a normal thing. But the part that will render you unconscious and eventually kill you if you're not given adequate oxygen on time is hypoxia. This is a term I've mentioned in previous episodes. It just means that your organs are no longer getting adequate oxygen. Even if you reach for your oxygen mask, you're toast. Those masks are meant for short emergencies, not long ones. I'm talking emergencies that last 10 to 14 minutes, and they won't stop you from the pain. Once the juice is gone, you'll be unconscious shortly after. When pressure is slowly lost, you will most likely feel a little fuzzy, and then your memory will wane. Sadly, memory is kind of a non-factor because memory is strictly a living thing. Your sense of clarity will slowly fall away, and then you'll be out. For people who actually wake up after, like on the flight that somehow forgot to pressurize the cabin in the first place, they reported that they didn't even remember falling asleep in the first place. When many of them woke, they knew something went awry because they were bleeding and in agony. But in the case of Flight 370, they simply would have never woken up, especially if this was done early on. I suppose the only possible comfort in this possibility is that the passengers would have had a suffering-free death. Another theory that I find running through my mind is that perhaps Zahari did plot to end his life and down the plane, but was experiencing second thoughts. This could be why he continued to fly for an additional six hours after falling off the radar. If that was the case, there'd be no turning back once he depressurized the cabin. If any of those passengers died, he'd lose his ability to change his mind. At least it would have gotten a lot more complicated. It just seems so unbelievable that an experienced pilot with a family would go to the extremes to end his own life while flying all while taking down every single passenger on board. Unfortunately, this very thing has been done before by others. One of the pilots on Egypt Air 990 is accused of deliberately crashing the plane with all the occupants on board simply as an act of revenge. In this case, they actually recovered the black box recordings which aided in reaching this conclusion. One of the pilot's adversaries, a man who had just told him before getting on board that he'd no longer be able to fly U.S. routes because of sexual misconduct, was also on board the plane. Many people view this as his boss telling him, this is your last flight, and in turn the pilot deciding, well, this is your last flight too. One of the final statements made by the pilot before switching off of autopilot and pushing the plane into a dive was, I rely on God. It appears he had locked the co-pilot out of the cockpit and he somehow managed to shove his way back in. He's heard saying, what's happening, Camille? What's happening? The pilot simply replied by reiterating, I rely on God. There have been several other similar incidents in history as well, though an extremely rare occurrence, it does happen. Another theory for the missing flight that was tossed around frequently in the infancy of the investigation was a potential hijacking. Can you imagine getting a call that a person you love dearly was on board a plane that happened to completely vanish days ago. Well, unfortunately, that happened to 239 people's families, but two of the calls were wrong. Two people, an Italian man and an Austrian man, had their passports stolen months prior, and two individuals who boarded Flight 370 were granted access with those stolen passports. According to records, both were in fact on board the plane. I can only imagine what a huge relief it was to find out that they were both not in fact on the plane and were safe and sound this of course sparked questions about whether or not the individuals using these stolen documents had actually hijacked the plane security footage from the airport was pulled and analyzed and alas both of the men were identified they were also ruled out as suspects it appears that the men had actually been attempting to flee their home countries and hope to seek asylum one wished to eventually travel to germany to reunite with his mother Neither had any connection to known terrorist groups. They appeared to be on the opposite end of the spectrum of what you would expect from terrorists. Stolen passports are not an uncommon problem. They are typically sold on the black market, mostly to people in desperate situations who wish to flee their homes for safety reasons. We don't hear about it often, and of course, after 9-11, we're all a little on edge when it comes to forged identities of people boarding planes. I personally remind myself that there are countries out there the citizens are living horrible lives. They're afraid and in imminent danger if they stay. Sometimes they aren't given opportunities to provide food and shelter for their families. Sometimes fleeing is the only chance they have at survival, even though the act in itself can be incredibly dangerous. Also, a hijacking with an end goal to kill everyone on board just makes little sense. It did early on before we knew that the plane continued in flight for an additional six hours after vanishing. What motive would a hijacker have to steal a plane, take it on one of the longest joyrides in history, and ditch it somewhere where it wouldn't be found? Most terrorist organizations want to take credit for the act. It is all about spreading terror, and you need people to know about it, to fear it. Without the plane's black box, that organization would never be given credit, and that just doesn't add up to me. Another common theory is that the Malaysian government was somehow behind the disappearance, or possibly even China so many rumors have sparked up surrounding this which of course happens with things like this people began claiming that some really important people were on board people that other governments would want dead but frankly there is no proof of that a bulk of the passengers were chinese citizens there were a few artists some people returning from a calligraphy exhibition they were just ordinary people who had really terrible luck getting on that plane One couple had finally decided to take a long-overdue honeymoon to Beijing. They couldn't afford to travel after they wed two years prior. Sadly, they finally saved enough money only to climb on board a doomed plane. I can't rule out that this was caused by a government entity. But keep in mind, this resulted in the most expensive aviation investigation. It came at great cost to the Malaysian government, as well as the airline, which was government-owned. After the incident, people were reluctant to get on a plane through that airline company. They saw a huge dip in sales. And of course, there are theories that I'm not even going to mention because they are not based on anything valid at all. In fact, majority of them are based on just bold-faced lies told by reporters, a couple of rogue reporters, in a couple of strange articles. But I don't believe the Malaysian government necessarily cause this however they could be part of a cover-up i mean honestly who knows it seems that the murder suicide theory makes the most sense but again this is simply based off of the information that we have there could be information purposely being withheld from the public that could in fact lead us in an entirely different direction well the final thing i have left to tell you is perhaps the most grim it's what the people on board likely experienced I've already explained what it would have felt like if the cabin was depressurized. If that didn't happen, a far more ominous death likely took place. Luckily, some of the wreckage found that was confirmed to belong to the plane has provided us further insight. Several pieces of the plane's flaperon was found. The pieces were relatively intact and able to be reconstructed. A flaperon is a piece of the plane's wing, which helps to stabilize the plane when flying at lower speeds, especially for takeoff and landing. The flap around was analyzed by several aviation experts that were able to confirm that it was not configured for landing at the time of the crash. This damn near allows us to rule out the possibility of a controlled crash landing in the ocean. Controlled crash landings are done basically when something is terribly wrong that prevents the plane from landing properly. It's utilized to try and minimize injury and fatalities as much as possible. There have been several witnesses who claim to have spotted the plane at various times and in various places. Majority of them claim that the plane was flying dangerously low. One even reported that the plane was touching the clouds. That leads me to suspect that the plane likely wasn't nose-diving into the water from altitudes of 30,000 feet or more. A lot of the wreckage found suggests that it was a lower impact hit into the ocean. The passengers on board, if conscious and still alive, would have seen it coming. The gray velvet would appear to get closer and closer, eventually turning to blue choppy waves. After a long ordeal of uncertainty and fear, they would upgrade quickly to complete panic. Some would grab their life vests. Their panic could have clouded their judgment, causing them to deploy their vests early while still on board, something you should never do. At the moment of impact, catecholamines like adrenaline would be released in tiny rippling explosions through their system, hopefully inducing a state of shock that shielded them from the worst of it. It certainly wouldn't feel like water. They may as well be crashing into cement with the forces at work. Glass would splinter and shatter into tiny sharp fragments that would swirl all around the air like mini crunchy cutting twisters from the deceleration. Depending on how hard of a hit it truly is, the very same thing could be happening within some of the bodies of the victims, only with their cells and bones. Cells would die and pop one by one. Vulnerable bones like the rib cage would shatter into tiny fragments, and attempt to fly upward, only to be contained by the feeble barrier of their breaking flesh and tissue. For the ones who endured the most shock and force, they would have likely died on impact. Organs can easily rupture, including the brainstem. Even tiny fragments of bone can pierce the lungs or heart. But for the people who didn't sustain that kind of damage, it would no doubt be worse. Some would be too battered to move. Their spines may have broken, causing immediate paralysis, organs like the liver and kidney, some of the most vulnerable in our body, would rupture. None of this would cause an instant death. They would be left helpless to bleed out. They also would be stuck forever on that damn plane as it sinks to the ocean floor. Their misery would come on like a symphony. At first, it would be relatively silent. Only the strings are subtly playing. There's a dull ache that feels miles away. As the seconds ticked by, it would rumble from within, growing in intensity, the internal bleedings inflaming surrounding tissue, giving way to a deep, hot pressure. Their heads would buzz for a few moments, only to chime with a vice-like squeezing. Soon the symphony would crescendo, leaving them in a state to feel every single beaten nerve, every single bloodied injury. It's at that moment that they would wish for it to just be over. And now, the waters quickly filling the bowels of the plane— If it weren't for their maddening pain, they might even feel a deep, wet chill. Suddenly, their pain slowly quiets once again. Too much of their life has drained out of their body. Everything's a distant whisper. Their heads no longer ache, but feel hot and overinflated. Is it nausea whelming in their esophagus or a desire for a deep, eternal sleep? As for the passengers who obtained the least amount of damage, they would fall into one of two categories. One being people who handle pressure well and think on their toes, and the other being people who give in to panic and make terrible miscalculations. Majority would be shielded from breakthrough pain due to shock at first. The panicked who put on their life vests and deployed them early would not be able to get off the plane. As water rushes in, they'll find themselves stuck at the top of the waves. All of the strength of that water will fight them. They won't have the strength to beat it and get off and once the water rises to the top, they'll rise along with it until it finally goes completely under, and that will drag them down to the bottom of the ocean floor. Water will flow into their mouths and nostrils. After around 87 seconds of being completely submerged, they'll have too much carbon dioxide in their blood and not enough oxygen. This will trigger a brain response, which forces an involuntary breath. It can't be avoided. It's a last ditch effort for your brain to save you which, of course, it's not understanding that that's currently impossible. Their throats would burn as if the cool water has transformed a molten glass. Water would aspirate into their stomach and lungs. In another 30 seconds or so, they would finally drift away into a heavy sleep. Two minutes after that, their systems would give out and they would die. As for the quick thinkers who were able to get off of the plane before it sank, but without a life vest, well, their muscles would seize up from exhaustion after attempting to tread water they would have no choice but to eventually give in completely, and they would meet the same fate as those who were stuck inside of the plane. And for the people who got off with life vests, they certainly would have had a better shot. Of course, we sadly know that they were never found, which means they would have been left to die, likely from dehydration, in a few days. The water temperature in the Indian Ocean in March and April averages about 84 degrees Fahrenheit or 29 degrees Celsius. Hypothermia was not an immediate threat, I can't help but feel that it would be way worse if passengers survived and escaped that plane with their life vests. Their death would have been drawn out. They would have had a small beacon of hope that would have been crushed as time just dragged on. They would just be stuck there, stagnant, drifting with the large waves, desperately hoping for rescue. And when rescue never arrived, they too would eventually die. It is so fucking heartbreaking. Hopefully... Hopefully, new technology will bring some closure to this puzzling mystery. I mean, I really need that to happen. Every other year or so, I hear about a new team of people employing their own devices to search. And when the wreckage was found, I renewed hope that a conclusion was near. Of course, it's been years since that happened, and we still haven't gotten our conclusion. Oceans account for 70% of the Earth's surface, yet we've only successfully explored 5% of it. That can make this feel a bit futile, but we honestly seem to be closing in on a general area to look, so it is a possibility that we will learn of breaking news in this mystery in the coming years. Thank you, my loves, so much for joining me on another exploration. I will see you at this time next week. Until then.